So Encounters with Jesus, this uh, study is about one-on-one interactions that Jesus had with people. And in the stories of Jesus that we have in our Bible, there are literally dozens of like a one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with people. And uh, many of these uh, encounters begin with someone approaching Jesus because they want help with something. Uh, A woman approaches Jesus, she has a long-term medical illness and she desires healing. There's a desperate dad of a demon-plagued son that begs Jesus for help. There's a guy with leprosy. He wants Jesus to heal his leprosy so that he can uh, rejoin community and go back to his family. And there's a father of a 12-year-old girl that is dying, and these people found their way to Jesus, sought him out, and asked for his help. So I'm just, just wondering, uh, if Jesus like, were around today, like visiting Grand Rapids, let's just say someone booked uh, the amphitheater at Fred Meyer Garden, and Jesus did a series of lectures there giving his teaching, and you heard that uh, afterwards, sometimes he would stick around and you could go stand in line and go up and ask him for help. I'm just wondering, what would you ask for help with? For some of you, you go, oh, I, I know immediately, chronic back pain, chronic back pain. I would... I would can you touch me and heal me of chronic back pain? Some of you, it wouldn't be physical. It'd be complicated and painful family situation. You'd seek his advice on how to deal with a problematic child or perhaps a problematic parent. You might seek out his comfort in how to manage suffocating grief because of a loss. So if you were to stand in line and wait to talk to Jesus asking for his help, what would you want? And in the encounter that we look at today, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching a pretty large crowd. And it's like there's this guy that somehow gets, elbows his way to the front of the crowd. And as Jesus is teaching, he asks for Jesus' help. And he asks for Jesus' help with a complicated family situation. His dad has died, and his brother is not splitting up the inheritance as he desired. This is what kicks off this encounter with Jesus. The guy approaches Jesus, and he says this. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's why he wants help. But teacher, tell my brother to split the inheritance. Apparently, the brother was not dividing it fairly enough or fast enough. Rabbi, teacher, make my brother share this inheritance with me. Now, I don't know what was going on in this guy's mind, but we can imagine. We can imagine what was going on in this guy's mind because all of us have found ourselves in a situation where we had our hearts set on something and someone was standing in our way. We kind of get what's behind this. And inheritance, often in uh, the world of the Bible, a lot of times it was property. Don't just think vacant land, but man, they planted things wherever you could plant things. So maybe this was income-generating property, a grape vineyard and an olive uh, grove, a place where wheat could be planted. And until he got the property, he couldn't get the income from the property. And maybe he's thinking, like, when dad dies, (laughs) when dad dies, I won't any longer just be living from week to week. I'll have some financial margin when dad dies. When dad dies, maybe I can uh, eat a little better and sleep a little longer when dad dies. When dad dies, I might step into a level of personal comfort that I don't have now when dad dies. 
and his father died, and his brother, his brother refused to split the inheritance either fair enough or fast enough. And so he comes with this question, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's really not a question, is it? It's really not a request, is it? Does it sound kind of like a demand to you? He doesn't ask Jesus to arbitrate. He doesn't say, could you just please sit down with us, hear, hear both of our sides, and, and help us make sense of this because it's ripping our family apart. No, he doesn't ask Jesus to arbitrate. He says, you join my side, make him share with me. Tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. And if his demand seems kind of controlling and abrupt, you need to know Jesus' answer to him seems equally as abrupt. Jesus looks at him and says, I'm not helping with this. I mean, the way he words it is like this. He says, man, who appointed me judge or arbitrator between you? Who made me judge over this situation? It, it, Jesus senses that this guy is grasping for something. And Jesus basically says, I'm, I'm not going to help you with this one. Now, what happens next is that instead of addressing the man in this one-on-one -on -one encounter, the people in the crowd have heard this interaction. Jesus now begins to address them. And what he is about to say messes with me, I think, as much of, as any of Jesus' teachings. What Jesus is about to say shakes me and convicts me and messes with me as much as I think anything else he said. And if we really listen to what he said, I think it should mess with all of us. Because what Jesus is about to launch into, based on this one-on-one -on -one interaction, he's about to launch into a teaching about our relationship with our stuff. And my dear friends, in this country, in this century, in a materialistic, consumer-driven culture, I'm, I'm, my goodness, if they needed back this in peasant culture of the first century, how much more do we need this now? It's an uncomfortable conversation. I want to suggest that it's not a conversation we want to have, it's a conversation we need to have. It's a conversation about our relationship with our stuff. Now, toward the end of the sermon, I just want to take some time to talk about how, on a personal level, I struggle deeply in some areas in this area, and also, how I'm growing uh, in my spiritual journey in this area too. So some very kind of private and personal stuff uh, on the back end of this. Guy comes, make my brother, make my brother, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Jesus goes, yeah, it's not gonna happen. And he looks to the crowd and what he's about to do is he's about to, uh, he's about to give a warning. That's what he does first. And then Jesus tells a story, it's called a parable. And then lastly, he just gives a reality check. It's just this one verse that ends the segment, boom, pow, in this reality check that Jesus gives. But first comes the warning. So uh, part one is just, uh, is just the warning. And in your Bible, you would find this interaction, this encounter with Jesus in Luke chapter 12. And so we jump in at about verse 15, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, uh, Jesus says, watch out. It's a warning here, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then Jesus says this, life does not consist in the, an, an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so just that first part there, it's a warning part. Uh, what Jesus says, oh, watch out, watch out, be on your guard. Uh, someone on a facilities team, 
uh, goes to a slick surface, you know, a tiled floor, and they mop the floor. And before they take off, they bring one of these little things, and they come and they set it up, and they go, look, caution, you know, wet floor, slippery. Here's the deal. Wealth isn't wrong, but it can be dangerous. It can be slippery, and people slip and fall over the issue of accumulating stuff all the time. And so Jesus just starts with this warning. It's like he's putting out a warning sign. He says, watch out, watch out, watch out. It's slippery. It's slippery. And then that last part of the conversation where he would just go, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. When he said that, he's calling us out. He's flipping something that we believe to be true that, that isn't true. He's calling out a lie that we believe. And the lie that we believe is this, more stuff, more life. That's intuitively, yeah, it's obvious, more stuff, more life. Uh, you, you, get a, you get a bonus or a raise, your income goes out, and you go, yeah, more stuff, more life. More house, more life. Uh, more clothes, more life. More trips, more life. More interesting dining out restaurant opportunities, more life. Yeah, Jeff, more stuff, more life. And Jesus is going, okay, no, 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 no. Not necessarily so. And so when he made that statement, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, what he's doing is he's flipping this on us and he says, no, 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 no. More life will not necessarily come from more stuff. And on one level, we know he's right. On one level, we know he's right. You suspect that Jesus is right on this one whenever you run into a person that's well off and is totally miserable. Are you with me on this? A person that kind of embitters themselves over time and has real no relationship with their kids. Uh, they're alienated from their family. Uh, a person who has a deep-seated unwillingness to forgive, and because of that, they have no long-distance friendships because people mess up. And you go, well, you messed up. I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting you off. There's no, and you kind of go, no, no, no. That person is well off financially, but they are poverty-stricken relationally. In fact, they might be poverty-stricken relationally and poverty-stricken spiritually, and it leads you to ask the question, is that a rich person or is that just a poor person with a lot of money? And there's a difference. So on one level, we go, oh, my goodness, he's right. More stuff does not necessarily mean more life because there are people, listen, I would want their stuff. I wouldn't want to trade places with them. I wouldn't want their life. Jesus said, no, more stuff doesn't mean more life. On one level, we know this. We know he's right. On another level, we know he's right. Just looking around at our, our culture, uh, just a newsflash, we are part of the highest standard of living in the history of the world. I'm talking overall. Americans, this century, highest standard of living in the history of people. Because of medical breakthroughs, we live longer. Because of agricultural farming inventions, uh, food is more plentiful. Be because of mass production, 
clothing is relatively cheaper. We have, most of us have more clothes than we could possibly wear. Even something that we fail to recognize sometimes, like accessories on automobiles. We have accessories on our cars that was unimaginable just two generations ago, like seatbelts. My buddy, Brian, climbs into a U-Haul truck with his 12-year-old son. And his son's looking over at the passenger side door because he sees something and doesn't quite know what it is. It's this thing with a knob on it. And my buddy Brian says, go ahead, turn it. And he does. And the window went down. And his son is like, whoa. I have a feature on my car where I am backing up and my car starts to beep at me when I get too close to an object behind me. All I'm saying is, is that we are part of the wealthiest civilization that has ever lived. Higher standard of living, larger space in our houses, more stuff in our houses than any civilization that has ever lived. And because of that, that is why we are so happy. <laughs> we are, as a people, we are profoundly unhappy and depressed and disappointed by life. And it's like more is never enough. This more stuff, more life hasn't happened for us. And Jesus calls it out and he calls us out. And he just says, listen, warning, it's slippery. Wealth isn't bad, it's just dangerous. Watch out, be on your guard. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And you take that statement, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, and you just say, I need to read that every time I open an Amazon site before I click. In fact, there's another place in our Bible. It happens to be in John's Gospel, John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus would throw this down. He would say, I have come that you may have. I have come that you may have life and you may have it to the full. I think what Jesus is expressing here is that the emptiness in me is so vast. No amount in my bank account and nothing I can buy can fill the empty that is me. No interest return, no pile of Amazon boxes on my porch. The infinite space in me is so big it can only be filled by an infinite God. Jesus is saying, walk with me, know me, ask me to walk with you. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. There's something that the crucified, resurrected Jesus came to do and came to be that is supposed to fill that empty space that I'm trying to fill with my stuff. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I just go, pow, done. He's not done. He's just getting warmed up. So after giving this warning, next he tells a story. And the story he tells is about a farmer, a wealthy farmer, who had a killer year. Just absolutely crushed it. Uh, Jesus starts to tell a story. He says, and he told them, the crowd here, this parable. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. 
I mean, obviously this guy was industrious. Obviously he plowed. Uh, obviously he got out there and, and, and harvested. But the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. It's almost like the ground gets credit. It's, it's like there's something set in motion by the creator where the sun shines and the rain falls and crops grow. But it is a, he gets a bumper crop that year and now he's got a problem. Now Jesus tells this story masterfully because what Jesus does is he shows the guy talking to himself. Uh, any of you ever kind of walked around the house talking to yourself out loud? This is what happens. He's talking to himself, and we get to hear his interior monologue, what he's thinking and what he's saying to himself. And there's like three different speeches he has with himself. Uh, speech number one, he says, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my grain. He's, I got a problem. It's a storage problem. You, you get this mountain of grain out there. Uh, it just sits out there. If it rains, it's going to mildew and spoil. Uh, animals will come and eat it. Uh, people can come and steal it. And he just, he's got this mountain of grain there. He says, I got no place to store this stuff. You're going, dude, you better get that under shelter. You better get that taken care of because making money is one thing. Hanging on to it is something else. He goes, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I got, I got no place to put this stuff. And conversation number two, and probably some time has passed, and he comes up with a solution. And here's his uh, solution. Then he said, this is what I'll do. This is what I'm going to do. I'll tear down my, my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Okay, I got these barns. They're full. I have too small a capacity. Going to do a little demolition project. Take that one out. Take that one out. Take that one out. And just build bigger barns, and that will store this grain that I've collected. And you're going, Jeff, what's wrong with this program? This guy is just smart. I mean, you work hard. Things go well for you. You then have surplus, and it's really your job to protect it to make sure it doesn't waste away. What's wrong with this program? Nothing so far. But in conversation three that he has with himself. There's a subtle shift that takes place and things begin to turn. The third conversation is he's now projecting out into the future and the conversations that he's going to have with himself downstream. He says, uh, uh, and I will say to myself, this is in the future, I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, that's just the American dream. You get money stashed away. It's growing, it's working for you rather than paying interest, you're making interest, you're earning interest. Dude, kick back. Dial it back a little bit, enjoy some great meals, a fantastic glass of wine, and enjoy yourself. This is what I'm gonna say to myself, you have stuff set aside for many years. Notice this here, it's not simply, he's not, no longer living paycheck to paycheck, it's not only that next month is covered, but he goes, man, I got enough stashed away to live for years. Chill and enjoy. This is the, I mean, ask, invite this guy to speak to the local econ club. He, he's obviously successful in what he's done. What went wrong? What went wrong? There's something he doesn't know. He doesn't know the eat, drink, and be merry thing. He doesn't know that those are meals he's never going to enjoy. And that those are glasses of wine that will never be consumed. And that those are days of relaxation that he will never experience. Because he doesn't know that he only has hours to live. 
And that changes this whole equation. We hear now the voice of God. We've heard the guy talk to himself and now the voice of God. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This guy doesn't know, in Jesus' story, this guy doesn't know that that very night, within hours, death is going to come knocking at his door. And he's sitting down at his dinner, and his wife says, you don't, you feeling all right? I just think it's indigestion. I'm going to go for a walk. And he walks outside, and he's walking past this mountain of grain and by these little barns that are marked for demolition where he'll build the bigger ones. And a servant looks over just in time to see him go down to a knee and then to fall forward. And by the time the servant gets there, he's gone. He's gone. What we're seeing here is a person that had prepared for life but had not prepared for death. The problem as I see it wasn't that he had a surplus. The problem as I see it was the way he viewed his surplus. It's not just what his focus was on, it's what his focus wasn't on. And his obsession with a comfortable life had eclipsed a focus on being rich toward God and rich toward other people. Now, the last part of that verse, you fool, tonight, you're going to go down tonight. Then who will get these things that you prepared for yourself? I just want you to focus that last word is yourself. Then who will get the things that you have prepared for Yourself. His life was self-centered and self-focused. It wasn't, it wasn't that he had a surplus. It was the way he viewed the surplus. And by the way, by the way, you know how much that guy left, don't you? All of it. <laughs> I, I just got to remember everything I buy, everything I save, either it's going to get old and leave me or I'm going to get old and leave it. And Jesus' question there is haunting. Then who is going to get what you prepared for yourself? I don't know. He dies. His kids, his family will mourn the loss. And then, then maybe they will swoop in and fight over the inheritance just like the brother who demanded, make my brother, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. But that last word that you prepared for yourself, there seems to be something going on here that's kind of like self-centered and self-focused. So... Part one of the story is just this warning, watch out, watch out. Part two is this story of this successful farmer. Uh, part three is a reality check. So just to uh, turn now to what I'm just calling the reality, the reality. It, it, Jesus lands the story with like one just pow. It, it comes to us in one verse, but it's like Jesus is saying, okay, here's my verdict. Here's, here's my re, uh, reality check here. And it's this in verse 21 where Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things, two critical words. What are they? For themselves is interesting, but is not God rich. Jesus, okay, this is how it's going to be with anyone who stores up things for them, but is not rich toward God, but is not God rich. And you get the idea 
that this guy's view on his savings, his view on his wealth, was totally self-focused and aimed at his own personal comfort. And that's where something went wrong. By the way, there were clues throughout the story. There were clues throughout the story in the pronouns, I, me, my, I, me, my. For instance, the guy talks about my crops, my barns, my grain. What am I going to do with my crops? I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns, and there I will store my surplus grain. There is this thread that weaves through the story, which is just kind of me, 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 me. The caution seems to be given here about seeing our income, our spending, and our savings primarily and fundamentally to fund our own comfort. That seems to be the warning that Jesus is giving here. It's a piggy bank. Actually, it's an owl bank. Uh, this uh, was on a shelf in my home. This happens to be a bank that survived my dear wife's childhood. This is her childhood bank. I like the fact that it's an owl, a wise owl. And in the back, there's a little slit where you put money. Uh, I'm a saver. Some people are spenders. If they're spenders and savers and on a continuum, I'm, I'm a saver. And just a moment of personal candor financially. Uh, Chris and I, we set these life disciplines in place. One of them is each year, spend less than we're making which is a good word of advice overall. Just spend less than you're making. Uh, secondly, we studiously avoided debt, which I also think is good life advice. That is, uh, rather than buying things we hope to pay for later, we would uh, save the money and then purchase them. So we studiously avoided debt. Uh, for years and years and years, we've diligently put money into a retirement account. And then every pay period, in addition to that, put money in savings and after doing this for years and years and years and years, it's grown and grown and grown. That's my piggy bank. For the record, we give more money away each year than we've ever given away before. And for the record, I save more than I've ever saved before. And it's grown. And as I confess, the first weekend in April, we're doing a series called Gospel Change. And I did this message on the gospel and wealth. That weekend, a couple months ago, I confessed that I can obsess over savings, investments, and interest rates. I don't know what you think of when you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, but my brain can automatically go toward, okay, when that CD matures, I can then get a different certificate of deposit at this new you know, interest rate. That's where my brain immediately goes. So that's why this passage messes with me, probably as much as any passage of Scripture in the Bible. Now, I never hear God speak to me in an audible voice. But if Jesus and I were to have a conversation about this, I imagine it going something like this. What's that? It's my savings. How much is in there? Good job. You've obviously worked hard. Oh, oh, I have. What's it for? The future? Ah, the future. What do you mean the future? Well, I plan on working and generating income for years to come, but it's, what if I last longer than my money does? 
It's for that day. So you want a future. It's preparing for the future. Yes, future needs like peanut butter and shoes. Mm, honestly, yes. It's so I'll have a comfortable future. A comfortable future. What does a comfortable future look like to you? You know, I don't entirely know. A bigger house? Oh, no. No, 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 no. The next house is probably going to be much smaller than the one we have right now. Uh, luxury automobiles? Eh, we've managed to do pretty well up to this point without those. Oh, expensive, fashionable designer clothes. Yeah, what was your first clue? Yeah. <laughs> now you're mocking me, you know. Hey, no, no. So, so what does a comfortable future look like? What do you mean by comfortable future? <laughs> we do like to travel. And we'd love to travel as long as we have the health to travel. And sometimes when we travel, you know, finding these little cool hole-in-the-wall restaurants, you know, going to interesting places, finding interesting restaurants. Ah, I got it. You mean eat, drink, and be merry. I didn't say that. You didn't have to. This isn't all about you, is it? This comfortable future, this isn't all about your comfort. Jeff, there better be something out there that is a bigger dream than cool restaurants at interesting destinations at relaxing places. There better be a dream bigger than that. So this is the passage of scripture, not this one, but one I'm about to take you to, which is, it's, it's basic, it's basic, it's basic, but has given me kind of a breakthrough in what I think about when I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. I don't know if this helped many of you, but this has been a massive help to me, so I just desire to share it. And it has to do with what Jesus said there in the temple courtyards of Jerusalem the last week of his life. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. I say he's going to get killed that week. He's not just going to get killed. He's going to give up his life. He's going to sacrifice his life for us that week. He spends almost every day in the temple area. Much of it is in animated debate, people on attack, trying to get him to slip up in his words. So the last week of his life, a guy approaches Jesus with a question, and his question is, what is the greatest commandment? That's a question that he asked Jesus in the temple courts. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus not only answers the question, he gives a bonus answer. He not only gives what is the greatest commandment, but what is the number two, second greatest commandment. When the guy says, what is the greatest commandment, what he's basically asking is, what does God want most? What does God want most in me? What does God want most for me? What work does he desire to do in transforming me? What's the greatest commandment and what's the second greatest commandment? By the way, some of you are familiar with this passage, and I'm guessing more than a handful of you know the answer. When the guy says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus responded by saying, the greatest commandment is this, love, anybody know what came next? Love, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You just love God with your whole being. And then Jesus throws down commandment number two, which is love your neighbor as yourself, which might sound easy, but it's just just love them like you love you, which is, I find a bit of a challenge. Love God, whole heart, soul, strength, might, 
love your neighbor as yourself. So it might look something like this, uh, to love God with my whole being and to love my neighbor as myself. Okay, what in the world does that have to do with money? If I am to love God supremely and love others around me, an implication of that is that what is in here just might be, for these two purposes, for the glory of God and the benefit of others, matching the two greatest commands. Loving God with my heart, soul, strength, mind, loving my neighbor as myself. If my money gets involved in that, what if savings, is? I see it as a way to glorify God and to benefit others. Can you read those two statements with me out loud? Ready, ready? The glory of God and the benefit of others. This could reshape the way you see your wealth, your savings, and your spending, and it is reshaping mine. The two greatest commands pulled into the financial arena. The glory of God and the benefit of others. My Depression-era grandparents, Ernie and Crystal Marietta, lived simple lifestyle, mobile home in eastern Wyoming. Grandma Marietta set up a savings account for each of her grandchildren with a little passbook. I had a passbook, and it had the amount in it. Uh, they lived simple, simple, simple. Their retirement was Social Security and a modest teacher's pension. Yet she would go into the bank periodically, had a passbook for each of her grandkids, $5, $5, $5, $5. Uh, months later, uh, $10, $10, $10, $10. When I graduated from high school, this had not amounted to thousands of dollars, but it was several hundred dollars. And I think we got the money like upon high school graduation. I, I wish I remembered. I don't know what I did with it. But as I wrapped up high school in California and moved to Bible college in Grand Rapids, I just assumed that it went toward life needs and starting college and the whole bit. Uh, there's something about my grandparents living a simple lifestyle, starting a savings account for each of their grandchildren, that I just go, wealth was used to, to bring glory to God and the benefit of others. Do you see it there? As I tell that story, is something in you that is warming? Something in you that just kind of goes, yeah. By the way, I've had to set up a similar fund. My grandson is nine years old. When he was five years old, there was an overnight, a sleepover at our house, and we woke up the next morning. I was in the front yard, and he raced into the front yard and said, Grandpa, 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 I saw Grandma naked in the shower, and she screamed like a little girl. <laughs> and it was that day that I set up the therapy fund. <laughs> because there are some things that you just can't unsee. <laughs> Grandparents on another side. Gerald and Margaret Kaiser, they farmed south of Lowell. Dairy farmer, sold seed corn. We were in our early 20s, raking up cash, down payment of our first house. We needed like 10 grand. We had saved seven. They saw the house and they said, if, if you get like to the date where you need to put this down, you're not quite there, let us know, we can help. They gave us a loan. I think it was in the neighborhood of $3,000 and we studiously paid it back, like 25 bucks a month, month after month after month after month, and they lived simply. These were not absurdly wealthy people helping their grandkids start out. I go, to the glory of God and the benefit of others. What if a great use 
What if a great use of what's sitting in here or an expense amid the other expenses of your life is uh, replacing the bald tires on your daughter or granddaughter's automobile as they go back and forth to school or back and forth uh, to work. It's particularly helpful if they are industrious and if they are working at making a start and it doesn't replace their industry and their productivity. It honors God to help take care of family. It honors God to help take care of family. But in that moment, I go, this is, this is not for me. So the glory of God and the benefit of others. And this is not just something for grandparents, and this is not just something for family. Uh, our uh, oldest son, Andrew, when he was like 16, 17 years old, high school junior, uh, he started sponsoring uh, child in South America through one of those child sponsorship things you know what I'm talking about, the, the World Vision, Compassion International, where for only a dollar a day, you know, like 30 bucks a month. He started that when he was a uh, junior in high school. Uh, the girl lived in Ecuador. She was probably like third grader. Her name was uh, Anna Lucia. And year after year, month after month, he was involved. Now, listen, that's 360 bucks a year for a kid who was working at one of those like fast casual restaurants. At that time, I think his giving was more sacrificial than ours, mom and dad's. Not bigger in amount, but bigger in actual sacrifice. What I'm saying here is this, don't wait until you reach your middle years to seize this. A 24-year-old looking at a tax refund should go, okay, there's something I wanna buy, but to the glory of God and the benefit of others should come into our minds. Grab onto this in your teenage years. Seize it in your 20s and early 30s. Uh, Chris and I, we started at Ada Bible Church. The church was tiny. We, we made almost nothing. It wasn't that the church was stingy. The church was incredibly generous. It's just, they're just, if you are seeking a fast track to financial health, do not become the pastor of a church of 25 people. And church was very generous. Just, there just wasn't a lot to go around. And in my early 20s, I remember a trip I had to take. It was to be involved in an extended family situation out of state. On the way back, I landed at O'Hare, was driving up, and in St. Joe, Michigan, my car stopped. 1974 Ford Grand Torino stopped. And when I say I was broke, I mean broke, broke. Uh, two guys, the, the towing bill to get it back was 140 bucks. And if memory serves me correctly, Henry Schwartz pitched in 70 bucks and Ken Denke pitched in 70 bucks to get my car back so then Henry and my friend Rob could get it going again. Now, this isn't families that were set helping a couple that was just starting out. All of us were just starting out. They were still in their 20s. They were still finding their way financially. What I'm saying is this, one of the most dangerous words we can use is the word later because we believe it and you just keep postponing the generous life where funds are used for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Grab this as early as you can, even in little ways when you're trying to squeak by financially. Uh, those of you who are newer at Ada Bible Church, you'll, you'll discover something over time about the financial culture of Ada Bible Church. You'll discover two things. One is that we have a tendency to be financially healthy. We have four campuses. All those buildings are paid off. 
We have gone into debt sometime for a major multi-million dollar building project. Our habit is to pay it off within two to three years of occupancy. That's our habit over and over and over and over again. Second thing, without high pressure tactics, without guilting, and without pleading. How exactly does a ministry do that? Be really healthy financially without guilt tripping and one financial emergency to the other? And the answer is, is that we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of single adults and couples who just consistently and faithfully make it a point to give to their church, like clockwork. Sometimes we get huge gifts, and for those we are thankful, deeply thankful but you would be absolutely amazed at the power and the dynamic of normal average people giving normal average gifts, but accumulated over time. You see, I get to be the pastor of a church where hundreds of people say, with my funds, I desire to bring glory to God. I desire to bring glory to God and the benefit of others. And just those five words that flashed up there real quick is probably not for me. That's what I began reciting at three o'clock in the morning as I began to think about interest rates on CDs or some other investment. It's prop, Jeff, it's probably not for you. It's probably not for you. This is to the glory of God and to the benefit of others. What I've, what I've been trying to say today is that I'm so grateful that as Jesus is teaching that this guy made his way to the front of the crowd and demanded Jesus' help. Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus goes, you're grasping at something. You're trying to feed a beast that will never be full. And Jesus tells him no. And then that, that provides the opportunity for our Jesus to have a conversation with us about what our stuff will never do with us and what we might be able to do with it. He throws down a warning because this is slippery. Shows us a teaching about a very successful farmer who missed it. And then he gives us a reality check about how, what it's like for a person that only does stuff for themselves, but is God poor? This guy's called a fool, highly successful businessman, he's called a fool. In our Bible, the word fool is used for a person who strays from the path of God and is not only self-centered, but ends up being self-destructive. There is something about feeding the beast, little more, little more, little more, little more, that is soul-destroying. And I end up believing the lie more stuff, more life. Increasingly, on a personal level, and I would urge you and challenge you to lean into the one who said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. It's the voice of the crucified, resurrected Jesus who says, walk with me, invite me to walk with you, know me, learn what it means to be infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure and learn where life comes from and where it never will. 
Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and our other spaces as well. Listen, I don't know where this, I don't know where this finds you today. I just, I, I just believe uh, in our culture, we just we have to grow in this one. So we ask, gracious God, give us soft hearts, give us ears to hear, courage to respond. Teach us one day at a time what it means to know you and follow you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We'll see you next week.